I'm back. It's Josh. This is uh, the podcast again. Uh, So good to have you. I don't know what episode number we're on. I think it might be five. Might be episode five. I don't do these very often, but it's uh, May 2021. And uh, what, what the fuck is going on? How are you? I am fine. I've uh, recently finished watching a Cheryl Crow NPR Tiny Music Desk concert video. And, uh, really fucking good. I mean, she's really good. She's just damn good at what she does. Um, but it, it, it sort of aged me a little bit. I was thinking about it. And when, when did I hear all I want to do is have some fun? It must have been seventh grade. Sixth or seventh grade, probably, is when that came out. And it was novel because um, she based it on a song or a uh, poem by some L.A. poet. I can't remember the guy's name. But she wrote the lyrics based off of that song. Or... (laughs) God damn it, I just butchered that. She took the lyrics from the poem and put the... She took the poem and made them into her song lyrics. Boom! That's what I... That's what I meant. That's what I meant. And uh, so so I'm thinking, and she's like, you know, we've been doing this for 30 years, and I'm like, shit. An entire 30-year-old adult that was born from the very first day you were on stage to now is walking around in the world out there, you know? That's pretty That's pretty wild to think about. You know, all the shit that can occur in 30 years, you know? That's been my same life. You know, I finished middle school. That year I went to science class, I probably felt, you know, weird having to walk through the fields, you know, during science class and pick up frogs and shit and put them in, in jars. I had football practice. I remember having to wash dirty football uniforms in the laundry room after sliding in a mud puddle in November. It was exciting and exhilarating and I never did it again, but I ran plenty of laps around the fences there and then um, you know, I made a phone call that same year from the same laundry room uh, phone to uh, two girls both named Katie. I'm not going to mention their names, but they were girls I had a crush on and my, my friend Josh also had a crush on both of them. So it was two Katie's and two Josh's going to see the very first concert I ever saw, which was Bush featuring Veruca Salt at the Palace of Auburn Hills. Now, it no longer exists. So there's a lot of years in between when the Palace of Auburn Hills closed down and when I first heard Sheryl Crow on the radio. And a lot of shit happened, you know? I drank things, I I did a lot of drugs, I made a lot of mistakes, had some legal problems, you know, relationships that fizzled out, you know, a full 30 plus year old person worth of life experience happened in that time frame. And it's weird, I was just watching this video with uh, Cheryl Crow and I'm looking at her and I'm I'm looking and thinking about me, per usual. And I'm just comparing it, and I'm like, wow, here we are. You know, like, we met again, but we've never actually met. But she's just been a familiar fixture in popular music since... since I was quite young. 
and her voice sounds beautiful still. Um, I love it. So, yeah, what's going on? Well, I'm spending too much time on social media, I'll tell you what. Spend too much time on Twitter and Reddit. Spending less time on Instagram because I kind of willfully start accounts and delete them and, you know, delete the contents on them and block followers and, you know, so I'm down to like sub 20 followers and I follow less than 10 people. It's not like a badge of honor, but it's like what I've sort of reduced my social media stock to, to mix metaphors. My, uh, but it's it's a concentrated mix of who I am, which is almost no one on Instagram. Sometimes I don't have a photo on there. I have one video of me playing Someday My Prince Will Come. But that's where I'm at with it. I'm uncomfortable and frustrated because I appreciate the medium, but I don't appreciate social media or all of the weird sort of superfluous uh, connections that are made promotions that are made you feel certain pressures to buy shit and certain pressures to to um you know participate in in you know social movements or you know make a comment about this or you know put some thrust behind you know uh politics and it's just it's a cesspool man and i know i'm i'm just pissing in the wind saying that but You know, whatever, I don't need to analyze social media. It's just, it's been a particularly troublesome time for me. Um, trying to navigate that and get anything else done in my life. Because um, I do have a day job. I don't just do this podcast. If I did, I would be miserably poor. I'm not rich right now. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm finding this podcast is just where I come to vent about shit. And uh, maybe I'll have a... a co-host someday and maybe I won't maybe this will just be a sad unobserved thing that aliens and extraterrestrial life forms of all persuasion may uh, find themselves tuning into and uh, ironically maybe I'll provide the key insight for human civilization to be understood through the ages um that's the hope anyway right that's why we all get out of bed right like to think we're just making the critical thoughts you know doing the real big work to to sort of bring bring meaning or to sort of froth up your disparate thoughts to sort of coalesce them into one one smoothie you can kind of choke down or throw away just depending on how repulsed you are by it that's his podcast i think um comedy stand-up comedy i I did stand-up comedy for honestly only about a year um but i still write jokes um i don't perform them that is all to say I appreciate the medium, but have like, I'm kind of baffled at where it's going. Um, you know, everybody and their brother has a podcast. I talk about quite a few of them because I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. 
um, you know, the most prominent of which is probably the Joe Rogan experience. Um, I listened to Tiger Belly, um, Bad Friends. Back in the day, I started out listening to Walking the Room, which was really, it's kind of still the gold standard, in my opinion. It's, it's a 2008 podcast. That and Super Ego really represented kind of more or less from an all-comedy perspective, like where you can go with the podcast medium. Um, you know, Comedy Bang Bang was a big one, too. And I know those all still exist. But in recent years, um, listening to those podcasts kind of made me a bigger fan of stand-up. And at that point, I guess I realized I was more of an all-comedy kind of stand-up uh, fan. And in listening to podcasts, you actually hear a lot of comics trying to, like, dispel the the any notion or, or not lend any credibility to the idea of there being camps of uh, club comics and camps of uh, alt comics and Neri the Twain shall meet. Um, and while I certainly see certain factions of comics uh, getting behind that notion and embracing uh, improv and stuff like that. There, there, there are kind of sects of comics who kind of have different mission statements. And in general, I kind of find the all comics more agreeable to my sensibilities. So I suppose that's why I listen to them. But recently I've been in this quagmire where I listened to the Joe Rogan experience and, and I started just out of the interest of seeing like, why do people listen to this guy? Um, because I grew up, like I said, I grew up in the 90s, so I saw, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, this guy hosting Fear Factor, and then later on when I got my Chevy Impala in 2008, I got XM Radio, and on that had all these stand-up stations, and, and I thought that was a dream come true, because I could listen to um, Just for Laughs Network, or I could listen to Raw Dog Comedy, and just listen to, like... Um, you know, stand-up is really interesting to me. The art form, the breadth of it, and, uh, you know, the amazing variety of creativity in that. And the, the excitement of, of the prospect of creating an artifice or an act that has, um, like, sort of a, a flow to it. It's very literate, you know. Those are just some of my tastes some of my formative pace and they definitely stuck with me over the years but but I was really into stand-up and, and you know one of the guys who would come up on Sirius XM because if you listen to Sirius XM one of the comedy stations they don't they don't play entire comedy albums they play them like songs on the radio but you know comedy bits can be anywhere from like 30 seconds to like a full eight minutes so you would often just get these sort of clips you'd have Eddie Izzard talking for two minutes on a subject and then and then it would cut and there'd be Pete Corielli, and then there'd be like uh, Louis C.K. and then Doug Stanhope. And, you know, I learned about a lot of great comics, but one of the ones that I heard that, you know, among others that I thought were just kind of like hacky and really represented the club comic mentality uh, were Joe Rogan 
and um, like Sam Kinison and all those comedy store guys. And I was a little bit aware of that culture to begin with, because when I started listening to podcasts around the same time, when I got my first iPhone, I was listening to Mark Maron's show. Mark Maron was kind of my entree into understanding the professional comedy world on a little bit more intimate level than just being a fan of various specials I'd seen. You know, I, 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 I grew up, the first comedy record I really heard that I fell in love with was um, Richard Pryor live at the Sunset Strip. And I heard that on vinyl at my friend Nick's house, rest in peace. Um, and uh, it was outstanding. Just his inflection, the way he said shit, just made me laugh in the dark, just imagining him, where he was standing in that club, hearing the glasses clink and stuff. It was just mesmerizing. It was magic to me, and I can't really describe why it's so alluring. But I imagine any stand-up who's done comedy before, uh, or, or any fan of comedy has had a similar moment where it creates this sort of theater of mind, whether it's it's on record or whether you're watching Dana Gould, uh, let me put my funny into you. Um, you know, they just sort of create an aura for an hour that sort of encapsulates them and their, their train of thought and the topicality. Um, it's just, it's outstanding. Um, so from an early age, I really love standups, but you know, listening to Marin Park, the all-comedy thing, um, which he was kind of one of the godfathers of him and Dana Gould and Pat Oswalt and David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and, you know, a lot of the improv groups from Chicago and San Francisco and L.A. and Boston even, created this <clears throat> almost like collision of theater, um, music, a lot of like grunge overlap and stuff like that um, the alt scene was like a more encompassing lifestyle whereas like the club comics were like the discipline and I say disciplined in a very loose way because by most standards they're fucking drug addicts drug addicts and messes but they have a consistency with how they live their life as like you know triple runs and weekend shows and you know touring clubs and staying in comedy condos and you know carpooling and doing uh, weird corporate events and stuff like that and writing gigs and other side gigs there's a continuity to that and a predictability and like well this is what you need to do you need to go on the road you need to need to do the clubs and uh, you need to prove your act across the country, you know? So it, in a way, it, it can be an appeal to an entire populace, or it can work to be sort of a against the grain shock comic kind of like virus approach, you know, which is like what some of the, some of the more evangelical members of the comedy community, like Sam Kinison, quite literally, or um, those like Joe Rogan who think that they are like sort of distilling, like he literally distills essays that he writes about subjects and then tries to pull out the funny and tease out the funny 
And I just, I don't find them funny, you know, and there's so many well-documented reasons for that. I just, I, I don't really need to go into too much detail. Um, just uh, hypothetically, but um, yeah, I find something wrong with that. The club comic mentality, you know, Rogan disappeared for a few years after there was sort of a blow up with Carlos Mencia called it was like the Carlos Menstelia uh, controversy and it was really just a, a confrontation they had on stage where Joe basically called him out for stealing jokes and Joe was backed up by what is now kind of his close circle of friends in the comedy community who also came from the comedy store Ari Shafir um, you know several others I just completely blanked on for some reason right now. Brian Callen is one currently, but back then I, d I don't really know who his close circle was. I know Ari really backed him up and Bobby Lee sort of uh, kind of lost face a little bit when he didn't necessarily stick up for, but didn't signal his disapproval of Carlos because Carlos brought him on the road for years, I guess, as an opener, brought Bobby on the road. So, all that to say that, that I'm aware of the origins of the comedy store. And after Joe came back, he brought that sort of cadre with him. And others, you know, that he shepherded in. Some of them baffling, like Brendan Schaub. I don't know why Joe, I mean, I understand Joe being open-minded, but to, to let that open-mindedness in his, in his editorial thinking, in his own personal belief system, to actually like encourage a fighter with CTE who has like no demonstrable understanding of like joke craft, I mean, at the very least, that doesn't fit in with the club comic mentality of having, quote, structured jokes, as if the all-comedy scene didn't have structure. They just don't have typical set-up-punchline structure. Part of alt-comedy is, is an alternative to the rigid structures of, of comedy. Part of the subversion is not of the audience expectations. In, in the delivery of the joke and the punchline, but also in the subversion of the audience's expectations of the structure of the comedy itself. Um, so that that's a way of being innovative. And the problem I have with the club comics is that they view themselves much more through a um, dangerously affecting of culture, but also unaffected by culture, sort of like Joe cites it as like a Hayoka type uh, role, which is, I guess, a Sioux Indian uh, tribal member who serves as sort of a clown, an absurdist figure that kind of points out the paradox in life and the silliness of things without claiming it so much as their identity, but serving more as a mirror or a foil to uh, people in their belief systems and structures and, and considerations of identity and all, all of these things. Um, so, like I said, Joe invoked this term. He, he views it as 
a profoundly important role in society. And I think it is, and I think we've always had those in society. But I think some of the club comics in their weird crusade for free speech at all costs, and often, often by proxy, their identity becomes the guy who has to push the race buttons all the time because he exists at the wall of free speech, just testing, testing the, uh, the strength of the brick, you know, pushing the boundaries, you know, they push boundaries in that way, not in terms of the form necessarily, but in terms of what is being talked about and how frankly according to a certain point of view. Um, and I just, I don't get down with that in all cases, you know, this, I, I, and I bring all this shit up because there's a comic, Tony Hinchcliffe, who is the host of Kill Tony and also his act. And he's done some of the Comedy Central roasts, I guess, but his credits are very uh i don't know they're very uh just just him pretty much <laughs> so maybe that tells you something I, I don't know who his crew is other than brian redband you know joe's former cohort and uh producer prior to young jamie um I, I don't know who Tony Hinchcliffe hangs out with. I, I assume the comedy store guys, because one of the things Joe Rogan claimed when they came back is that everybody was much more supportive of each other. Once upon a time at the comedy store, it was a dark, competitive, terrible place, but now it's all about hugging and, and laughter and support of one another. And everybody's got podcasts and everybody goes on each other's podcasts and everybody cross promotes one another. And you know, the comedy store was sold out every night and it was the craziest, greatest time of their lives. I don't doubt that, but to complain or to claim significance to that in the movement of stand up as a form is, is where I think the point of view of the alt comics and of the club comics uh, sort of differ. And I think indeed it becomes clear that that alt comedy kind of leaves room for more. Um, and club comics seem to be um, reveling in their own experience of being a comic. And that's kind of how they delve into it in podcasts. And that's why you, you just hear these comics go on the Joe Rogan experience and they just sit there and just kiss each other's asses for how great it is to kill. And, uh, you know, how necessary it is to bomb. And it's just always this dissertation on like how much comedy is taught them. And it's, it just gets boring after a while. I can't fault them for having it. I can't say they're incorrect about anything because I don't have their experiences. I'm just sick of hearing these self-aggrandizing experiences of comics because I think there are better ones. And unfortunately, a lot of them aren't working or like weirdly they've moved on to other things, which is like there's this weird sea change because I love stand-up comedy, always have. 
but the comics I kind of have to pick from. I know that sounds like a really fucking bratty thing, but hey, what are you, what are you going to do? If you like stand-up, you're going to go to the places where you can get stand-up, you know? And I like stand-up, so, um, you know, Greg Barrett didn't put out a new album this year. I love Greg Barrett. He's writing self-help books now, and he's doing self-help coaching, like life coaching and, and relationship coaching. That's his bag now. Um, so I'm not going to see a Greg Barron stand-up special. If he ever comes back with one, you'll bet your ass I'm going to be the first guy to buy it. You know, Dave Anthony, he's doing the dollop now. He's not really doing stand-up. I mean, nobody's doing stand-up except the guys that I would never want to see do stand-up. Joe Rogan has insisted on doing comedy all throughout COVID. But I don't want to hear the substance of what he's saying. And I don't care that he's defiantly doing comedy during COVID. So it doesn't thrill me to be at a show masked and tested on a technicality to be sitting there watching a guy who is very self-aware that he's doing a thing that a lot of people think he shouldn't be doing. But in his projection of being objective and honest about everything, he's He's just delighting in letting everyone know, no, we're, we've tested them. We've tested everybody and only four people ever got sick. He minimizes anything that ever could go wrong in his worldview and then chastises everyone else about how, what morons they are and how they can't possibly handle anything. And that's a characteristic that is so rampant in the club comic point of view, a lack of humility, overconfidence, and I don't know if it's just the stage lights, like burning their eyes to not be able to see, you know, what a schmaltzy like front that is, but it just doesn't play well in 2021. And there's so many great comics out there. Pat Oswald is a great one too. He put out a special, but I gobbled that shit up and like, I love it. I love it a lot, but there's so much volume of the Tony Hinchcliffe's in the world and Theo Vaughn's and Tom Segura's and Burt Kreischer. Burt Kreischer puts out enough material for the entire alt scene just by himself. And all I ever see is an audience of people saying, please stop, Burt. I don't know who wants this or who, who loves Burt Kreischer. I didn't mind his machine stand-up. His other two seem incredibly contrived and he's like kind of pushing himself in the real like kind of it doesn't seem like it's an honest way he's trying to push himself into being an edge edgy comedian and you know it's just gimmicky he takes off his shirt and he parties and like i i don't know that appeals to 20 year olds but you know that's that's another piece of this is i'm i'm getting older and in this his, the short hist of, or history of stand-up, you know, since the like 50s and 60s when Lenny Bruce and those guys were doing it, um, there haven't been that many lifetimes of guys who get to the age 37 and and there's more stand-up out there for them at the at the volume or the level that that we have now. So I'm like 37 with like all the choices of stand-up in the world, but the choices feel like garbage to me. Because the prominent ones, the amount of stand-up I want to take in comes from 
opportunists who just sell fucking ads all day and then just hand you lackluster comedy, you know, and then act like you should be grateful because it's free on podcasts. And it's like, if I want to listen to somebody sip on their Dunkin' Donuts cold brew and shoot the shit about the three headlines, not stories, headlines you read that day, then I would just talk to my fucking brother. You know, I, I don't need comedians telling me they're just regaling me with stories about how great it is in the, in the back bar at the comedy store, but can't actually tell any real stories about it. You know, it's like the club comic guys all have podcasts and they think we just all froth at the mouth and revel at the opportunity to listen to them pick lint out of their fucking belly buttons. Because that's all they claim they they owe anything to, is just a propensity to do what you enjoy doing and doing it with your friends. Never mind that it's being broadcast in the case of the Joe Rogan experience to like many millions of people worldwide. Um, and is now in the realm of like being criticizable, if that's a word. You know, so, so I just take issue with those guys. I, I think, I think they're really bitchy. You know, Tony, Tony Hinchcliffe got in trouble this week because there was a, uh, fellow comic of his from Houston, Texas, uh, opening for him and, and introducing him on stage in Austin. And this, uh, comedian was, I, I believe he's like Korean or Chinese. I, I can't recall. He's Asian American. And, uh, Tony gets on stage and he calls and he starts just calling him like just crazy racist slurs. And, uh, then the video cuts off. It's just the guy introducing him. Tony goes on stage, calls him racist slurs, and then the video cuts out. So there's no context. And that just sort of embroiled this war online, as most things do, involving, like, how do we reckon with, like, this guy, if he is a person and not a character on stage, is a piece of shit that we are all now kind of against our will being exposed to, but also kind of glad that we are exposed to it because it reminds you of what's out there, I guess? I don't know. From one point of view, it's a perceived threat um, that there's that there's another mind out there operating like this in a racist manner, and the assumption is that it is racist if 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 you can just label someone as that. Comics pretty uniformly don't like to be labeled like that, and in fact, often back off from owning the words they say, even though they view the right to say words to be sacred, the weight of those words is negligible relative to how much flack they're getting. You'll often hear an argument of like, you know, it was an act. It was a, it was a comedy act and you didn't see the context, nor do you know the intent. Well, that's convenient because we actually can't know the intent of someone. And I know Joe Rogan likes to think that Neuralink is going to be a great technology that is going to allow us to look into people's imaginations and for purposes of our 
own rhetorical efficiency, we can decide whether they're full of shit and worth and not worth arguing, or whether they are nuanced and nice and and completely objective and have no bias or motive, and therefore are are worthy of of arguing and debating you. Like what a selfish, like single-serving, completely like unromantic view of the use of technology. First of all, I think Neuralink is something he doesn't even understand. Like how you can read people's thoughts and understand their intent. Like you can look at them and just understand that they're in a flash, like I know Kung Fu in the matrix that, that this person was molested and therefore you assign some judgment to what that means about their ability to discern a good argument and then either walk away from them or don't. I mean, that's Joe Rogan's use for Neuralink in his mind. It's like, you'll be able to tell whether people are full of shit and worth talking to or not. And when challenged with that, he said, I'm a pretty open book. Go ahead, dig in there. And it's like, you may think you're an open book with the facts you present, but it's just like, it's that we don't live in a world that's limited to objective fact. It's like sometimes you don't have to be the guy to fat shame someone, though he has this like extreme desire to be the one to fat shame them and, and act like it, it fixes anything. Maybe it does, but the question I'm always wanting to ask him and and the part of his personality that I'm fascinated by is is why is he so empowered by his own success to believe that he's an arbiter for or or a good like person for advice on any of the shit he offers advice on anyway I'm getting kind of mixed up here so I'm gonna stop for a minute and Maybe I'll come back. Maybe I won't. Who knows?